Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the movies we discuss, the genre is decided by the role of a die, and then we pick that movie from that genre. And we also do interviews. And today, as my daughter already said, we have an interview. I'm going to be interviewing Cortland Hall, who runs the Witch's Dungeon. And I know it's a place I've always wanted to go to, and I, he brings part of it, like small samplings of it, to Monster Bash every June. And it's always great to see a little bit of the Witch's Dungeon. So I'm looking forward to going out there one day to Plainville, Connecticut, 103 East Main Street, to go see it. I wish I could be up there this Thursday, October 27th, 2022, from 6 to 9 p.m., because... Daniel Roebuck, who I interviewed earlier, the last episode, is going to be up there visiting the Witch's Dungeon and visiting fans and all that fun stuff. So if you're out in that area and you haven't visited the Witch's Dungeon before, or maybe you have, go see Daniel Roebuck, who's a 100% true monster kid, loves all that stuff and enjoys it just as much as Cortland Hall enjoys setting it all up and getting everything out there for people to see. All right, without further ado, we're going to go into the interview with Mr. Hall. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is Steve again with the Diecast Movie Podcast, and I'm coming to you from Monster Bash, June of 2022. And I'm joined today with Cortland Hall, the man, the myth, the legend of the Witch's <laughs> Dungeon up in Connecticut. I've never been there myself, but I, he brings part of it down here every Monster Bash and I, one of these days, I'm going to get to the Witch's Dungeon to see it all. But he does more than just that. How are you doing today, Cortland? I'm doing fine. That's the promise. you got to come see it. <laughs> I, I've made the promise. When I'm up in that area, I'm going to definitely do it. You know, I'm yes, going to be there sure. because it, it is a wonderful place. And what is the Witch's Dungeon, for those that don't know? Well, it's very unique. First of all, I think it probably should say how it all started. Uh, I was, had a rare blood condition when I was a kid. And I made model kits, uh, Aurora model kits, of course. And I loved the monsters. That was the main thing. But the problem was they were only eight inches tall. And I wanted them life-size. And I was a strange little kid. Whenever we went on vacation, I wanted to go to a wax museum. But the biggest problem was, at least when I was a kid, wax museums, if they said they had a chamber of horrors, it was not what you'd expect. It was not the Phantom of the Opera or Dracula or the Wolfman. It was torture devices or Jack the Ripper or something like that, and that's not what I wanted. And the whole point of doing this, I wanted to create a museum that was devoted to the actors, the makeup artists, and the effects people as a tribute to them and do it accurately the way they appeared in the films. Now, keep in mind, I was only 13 years old when I started it, but I was very, very fortunate because, because of my great uncle, Henry Hull, the actor that was the Werewolf London, he arranged for me to meet some of the greatest makeup artists of all time, including John Chambers and Dick Smith. And with their guidance and with their suggestions as to how I could go about this, that's how it started how it came to be also Don Post senior as well as I say your, your uncle really helped you out getting that that first start and what before we get into more that's a, what was your uncle like as a person because not many people 
get to hear about you know you know him well, at all well see the problem was that he was always working out in hollywood so i really didn't get to know him until he retired about the time i was 13 years old and so when he did he realized that i had this really urge to to do something related to makeup and effects and since he knew so many people in the industry he was the one that opened the door for me to get to know them uh henry was um educated well i should i should say that he studied in england that's why he had such impeccable diction and as a teenager he got on my case about that he says don't slur your words speak precisely <laughs> enunciate that's what he always said to me <laughs> anyway but i asked him so many questions about werewolf london and he had an incredible memory he even remembered the color of the makeup of the color of the costumes everything and so i would ask him so many questions about werewolf london he says my dear boy you grill me like a cheese sandwich <laughs> He says, you know, I did make at least 70 other motion pictures. Could we talk about them once in a while, you know? <laughs> but he, he loved the attention, and because he had retired and like that, he, he, he really loved the fact that I was so interested in his work. So um, he was a wonderful man, uh, very talented. A lot of people don't know he was a great makeup artist in his own right because on the stage, which he loved the stage, he did all of his own makeups, and you should see the makeup that he did as um, Mark Twain, and also especially as Edgar Allan Poe. The makeup was just remarkable, what he created. So really, initially, he would have liked to have done the werewolf makeup for Werewolf London, but of course, the unions were in at that time. And, you know, <laughs> Jack Pierce was the golden boy of Universal, so there was no way around that but I'd like to really clarify the the problem that or shall we say the rumors of, of surrounding the makeup in Werewolf London because of the fact that it had nothing to do with uh, with uh, Henry's that he was too vain to have a full makeup or whatever they've said or that uh, he couldn't sit in the makeup chair that's absolute nonsense obviously because he was the makeup artist himself the point was, the only reason that Henry had an objection to the makeup was solely the way the script was written. Because in the script, both the Valerie Hobson and the Lester Matthews characters recognized the werewolf as being Dr. Glendon. And if he had the full makeup on, like what Pierce wanted to do, which he eventually used on Lon Chaney as the Wolfman, there's no way they could have possibly recognized him. That's why he had to be toned back. And the reason Jack Pierce got so livid about it was because Henry tried to quietly suggest to him it needed to be toned down, but Pierce was very stubborn. And uh, so he refused. So Henry went over his head to, Jack, uh, to Carl Lemley, the head of the Universal Studios, yes. and uh, explained the situation. In a very quiet way, he wasn't trying to undermine Pierce, but Pierce took it that he was, and so he never forgave him for that. Uh, nevertheless, they worked together, and um, I think together they created a really memorable makeup, which, look at Curse of the Werewolf, looks a little bit like Henry as the werewolf, 
And then even today, if you look at Teen Wolf on MTV, that very much looks exactly like the uh, Werewolf of London makeup. So you can tell that uh, it, uh, it really had an impact. And that's the thing is you, the creative input. Nowadays, a lot of times, makeup artists will talk with the actor and try to get their creative vision and try to incorporate it as best they can. And mm. usually it's more of a, a, a unified creative force. But Well, yes, like what Rick Baker has done oftentimes, either he discusses it with the director or, or the actor and they come to a conclusion together. But Jack Pierce was Jack Pierce. <laughs> he was a little irascible, I guess, is the word you'd use. Yes, and this was in the early stages of the film with a lot of this makeup being done by oh, a specialist. Yes, so, absolutely, so. because don't forget, Lon Chaney Sr., of course, was the master of makeup, the man of a thousand faces. Not only was he an actor, but he also was a makeup artist. That was the point I was trying to get across, is that people don't realize that stage actors, they did all their own makeup, and that's where Lon Chaney came from, was from the stage, Lon Chaney Sr. Yeah. And so he was used to doing his own makeup. Of course, he was even more creative than a lot a lot of his peers at that time obviously because of what he i mean let's say the phantom of the opera there's nothing that has ever compared with that makeup that he did so anyway uh so pierce and and hull worked together and uh finally they they worked things out and uh if you think about werewolf london the very first transformation has never been topped i mean the fact that he's transforming while he's walking is quite amazing and that was a triumph not only of jack pierce but of effects man uh, john fulton who eventually won an academy award for parting the red sea in uh, the ten commandments charlton heston didn't do it alone you know <laughs> that was Jack Pierce, or I mean uh, John Fulton. Anyway, Fulton had already done remarkable effects with the Invisible Man. So this whole sequence, no one has ever talked about because everybody associated with it is now gone. It's only from what Henry told me. This involved a rear projection screen, a treadmill, and pillars that would go past it. And so it all had to be timed at, right down to the very second and so they did a run through without the makeup uh, for several hours the day before and then Pierce knew just when each of those pillars would pass by that's when a makeup change would take place but the, the film that they shot before for the rear projection screen that had to be synced up with the the um, the speed of the treadmill that Henry was walking on. So it was very meticulous to get it just right. And you have to realize back in those days, they couldn't do a playback right away. They had to hope they got it right. And they, believe it or not, they did do it, get it on the first take, but it took, that take took eight hours to do. Steady. So they were, um, Pierce and, and, uh, uh, John Fulton and my uncle Henry Hull, the three of them were working on that steadily for over eight hours. I'm always amazed with the creativity of a lot of old Hollywood mm -hmm. where they pull off these effects 
we're thinking, okay, this is what we're going to try to do. And they come up with so many different creative ways back from the silent movie days into the, uh, uh, and all the way up to current times. And I know nowadays everybody just relies on, oh, we'll do it in CGI, we'll do it in CGI. Or we'll fix it in post. <laughs> yes, fix it in post. Oh, which it's almost like the kiss of death in a lot of things. We'll fix it in post and yeah. it's just like, eh, you know. It's, it's not very good. Yeah. But they, they knew that really what you see is what you get, you know. And uh, uh, young people today don't realize that there was no let's play it back and see if we got it. You couldn't. Granted that you could see rushes of it, but it wouldn't be until the next day when they processed the film and then they could take a look at it that they could see if it came out okay or not. But Fulton and Pierce, both of them were meticulous about their work. And Fulton was an amazing effects artist. When you consider the tools he had to work with at that time, it was really remarkable. As I say, look at The Invisible Man, what he did with that. So um, the three, three major kind of transformations in Werewolf London uh, was a, a group effort between Pierce, my uncle, and uh, John Fulton. And the, the uh, two of the transformations weren't even done with Uncle Henry. What I mean by that is Pierce had developed uh, a perfect life cast of Henry, which he did four different makeups on. And so when Henry is asleep up in the tower the, um, uh, where he falls asleep and the moonlight comes in, that transformation is done with four dummy heads. At the very end of the picture where he's lying on the floor and transforms back, that's the same four dummy heads that were used for that. So he was the first one to use these dummy heads for, for doing the transformation. Although the other one where he's by the window in the Ho Soho uh, apartment, uh, that was complicated, very complicated, because at first he used an old trick that goes back to the silent era, where you have makeup that's either put on him in blue, and you hit it with a blue light so it looks invisible, and then transform it with a red light m makes it mm -hmm. appear, or the other way around, whichever way you want to do it. They use that as far back as um, the original, no, I was going to say Ten Commandments. No, it was Ben-Hur that uh, when Jesus passes his hand over the, um, the ones that are afflicted with, mm -hmm. with yeah. uh, um, the disease and they miraculously are, are cured, that was using that effect. That was one of the first times they ever used it. Of course, it only works in black and white film because you have blue and red that you work with. So the early part of the transformation by the window was done that way. But then think about after you see it subtly change like that, then, of course, Pierce had to go in and do the full makeup. Well, what people don't realize, and no one would know this except Henry telling me, is that that costume he was wearing was hardened. That whole cape coat was stiff as a board. So they pulled the wall out behind him, and he was in a, on another seat, and they would pull him and the wall out behind him. Pierce would do a partial makeup, then they'd push him back into the costume because 
Otherwise, you'd see wrinkles moving in the costume. So that was amazing what Fulton and Pierce figured out how to do that. I'm just amazed because I did not know how they pulled off all these different things. And it, when you watch it in the film, it's just so fluid. Fluid. And it, I, I'm always amazed because you know, we're always used to seeing things, with, like I said, computers and stuff like that. Mm. But what I love about the films was practical effects and, and the film magic, as I like mm -hmm. to say, is, is how they were able to use the ingenuity to pull these things off, which nowadays, you know, the younger filmmakers, sometimes doing the lower budget ones, but the, the, the people that get to the bigger budgets never have to try to pull up, except for some filmmakers mm. that really still like to use the practical effects or the practical magic. Although, but if you think about it, even when Lon Chaney became the Wolfman in 1941, six years after Uncle Henry did Werewolf London, I don't think the transformations were as remarkable as in Werewolf London. I mean, there's no scene where he's walking and transforming. There's no scene where mm -hmm. he's by a window and partially done. And you know, it was mainly a close-up of Cheney's face and having him transform through lap dissolves. Yes. Now, I will say this was another thing that was really clever of uh, Fulton. Generally, with Cheney, they would have some sort of pillow or a tree or something behind him that was shaped like the back of his head so that he would be in the same spot for each time uh, Pierce did the, the part of the transformation because they had to be sure his head was in exactly the right position so each dissolve would match up, see? Yeah. And that's part of what practical effects are all about. It's done in camera. It's nothing you can do afterward. It's something that has to be done in camera. So in other words, you're seeing it live, really. And that's what I love about it because I really feel, and I've said this in many other episodes before when I've talked to visual effects people and, other, and people about movies, the practical effects well, usually, if they've done well especially, have the legs and hold up for multiple, and for yeah. multiple years <laughs> where CGI... If you look at films that were done in computer graphics 10 years ago or what, or more, you look at them, oh, that doesn't look as whatever. Some of it almost looks cartoonish. It exactly. really doesn't look too believable. And uh, that was one thing that I've talked with Rick Baker. When he did The Wolfman, what was that, about 10 years ago, yeah. uh, he, he wanted to do it totally uh, practical effects. Later, they put in some digital stuff in there, but he was a little dismayed about that because he wanted it to be solely practical effects. And, the, and he did do a remarkable job with that. But anyway, um, I, uh, Mark Maddox wanted me to talk about something that I experienced when I was a kid. Oh, I know exactly what he wanted to talk to you about. He wanted you to talk about your visit to the set of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Well, 20th Century Fox in, in particular, because that's where they shot all these movies. Well, it wasn't just that. But, yeah, it was through John Chambers. John Chambers was a dear friend because of Uncle Henry, and he was the one that invited me to 20th Century Fox when he was starting work on Planet of the Apes. And so John, well, because everybody knew John and Fox, as a matter of fact, just a little side note, if you ever saw the episode of Lost in Space where Bill Mummy it becomes Dr. Smith, yeah. Yeah. that was done by John Chambers. 
<laughs> and, and even Bill Mummy said to me, he says, it was just remarkable. I couldn't believe what I saw in the mirror. <laughs> you know? uh, anyway, so John worked on, besides doing Planet of the Apes, he was working on a lot of stuff at 20th Century Fox, although Ben Nye was the key um, head of makeup at that time. But John did a lot of the real, real uh, complicated effects. Anyhow, so John decided to take me around since most of the shows were on hiatus at that time. He took me in to see the Sea View. And I want to tell you, it was just amazing because once everything was turned on, all the lights and the computers and everything in there, it was magical. It really was, even seeing it live. The only thing was, <laughs> um, when I looked at the... the uh, they're not called doors, ports, portals, you know, yeah. on the ship. I always thought they were metal. They were made of plywood, painted silver. And when you saw it close up, you could see it was plywood, see? And so I said, some, I don't forget, I was a kid. <laughs> and I said to somebody on the side, I said, gee, I always thought these were metal. Look, kid, it's movie magic. You know, yeah. we put in sound effects. The sound effects make you think it's metal. <laughs> That's what they said. So he said, "Don't judge it by what you see. Judge it by what you see on 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 TV. Yep. That's the way it's supposed to look." And uh, the other thing was, which it hasn't really happened yet, but it's coming close. That you know, Bill Malone restored Robbie the Robot, and he is giving the Witch's Dungeon, our museum, the computer screen that you saw on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. It was first, you, it, the very first time it was created was for a Spencer Tracy, uh, Catherine Hepburn film called Desk Set. Mm -hmm. And they called the computer Univac. So then when, they, when Fox was doing The Fly, it was used in both The Fly and Return of the Fly. And then finally, it was used in every episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea on the Sea View. So it's got quite a history behind it. This machine is bigger than you think. It's 10 feet long and 4 feet high. That's been the only problem. We're, we're trying to find a way of shipping it from the West Coast to the East Coast that we can put it on display. We're hoping to get it in, if all goes well, by the end of the year. But uh, it's just amazing that Bill Malone is giving this to the museum, and we're so thrilled about it. And I think as soon as we have it installed, you know, yeah. There'll be word out about this, obviously. Anyway, getting back to going to 20th Century Fox. Um, so I was only, I don't know, 14 or 15 at most when John was taking me around. And uh, besides seeing the sea view, he took me around to the back of the set, which it's all chunks of cardboard and cardboard boxes and crap. And I thought to myself, what is this? And then he takes me around to the front. It was the Batcave for Batman. From the back side, it looks like a bunch of junk. But then after they put it all together and then put a, a, a coating all over it to make it look like rock, then it's the Batcave. But even when they took me in there, at first the lights weren't on. It was just like, you know, it's single studio light on. Then John asked them to put everything on. So you have all the back computers and, and the, all the lighting in there. And the Batmobile was in there. Oh. So it was just amazing for me, a kid, to come in there and see that all lit up and all the, the machines going. It was just amazing.
Did you get to go in the Batmobile? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. And that was the real Batmobile, the, the very that first to me, one. That to yeah. me is the Batmobile. It that's, is. That's, that's it my is. Batmobile. I agree. That's my Batman. I totally agree, yeah. And the, that show is just the most fun of any show that's ever been on television to me. And look at the great stars that were the villains on that, not to mention, of course, Vincent Price. Yeah. But, I mean, um, so that was a thrill. It was a real thrill to see that. And unfortunately, they weren't shooting that day because they were on hiatus at that time. But, however, one show was still doing one more episode, and that was um, Land of the Giants. Ooh. And so John took me onto that set, and Gary Conway was being tossed around by a huge hydraulic, gigantic hand back and forth. They did it like seven times before the sh they thought the shot was good. He didn't have a stuntman. It was Gary Conway that was taking all this abuse from this <laughs> big hand. So when the director finally says, cut, we got it. And so uh, then John introduced me to Gary Conway, and he says, well, what do you think, kid? This is what acting's really all about. <laughs> and so years later, in one of our documentaries, which is going to be coming up, we're, we're going to have part of it in uh, October, uh, I got a chance to interview Gary Conway. And after I did most of the interview, I said, do you remember a kid at 20th Century Fox that John Chambers came over and had you meet him? And he says, that was you? <laughs> he says, I'm sure I remember that. So that was really nice that he remembered it. <laughs> that is just, I mean, that is just a cool story. I've met Gary Conway, Conway and he's just a very nice man. Incredibly very, nice man, yeah. And, 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 and his memory is so good about those, oh, early, yeah. those early things. But, I mean, you know, I was just a kid. I figured maybe I didn't make any impression at all, but he remembered it. He remembered it. So that he was—he's always been very, very nice, and after all, he also did Burke's Law and he did a lot of other shows. So, not to mention, of course, I was a teenage Frankenstein, which everybody knows him for. But um, he's really a fine actor and a very nice man. So that was my main experience at 20th Century Fox, and uh, the problem was that at Fox they had a policy: you couldn't take any pictures. So when I came home, I'm telling my friends about the experience I had. None of them believe me. <laughs> Where, they said, where's the pictures? Where's the proof? Yeah, see, you know, that was a problem. But uh, I know it happened. And, and Gary Conway knows, so the heck with him, you know. <laughs> I got one witness. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got Gary Conway. Anyway, but, um, yeah, it's been... I've been extremely fortunate, the people I've known, and like as I mentioned in the presentation we did the other day, one of the people that has been the most influential has been Dick Smith. Dick was, I learned so much from that man, and not only in sculpting, but also in painting. People don't realize when you've got a face that's going to be 80 feet wide or something on the screen, something on a big screen, you have to be meticulous as to how you do the shading, the coloring, all of that. And so not only did it help me when I was recreating these characters, but also uh, when I was doing art myself, you know, two-dimensional paintings. So um, he, he was a remarkable artist, just a remarkable artist. And as I mentioned, Dick w would say to me, 
Uh, he says, this is really very, very good. However, this is how it can be even better. And you learn from that. That's how you learn because you can never be perfect. Even Dick said, I'm never perfect. He said, I'm always learning. And that's what people have to remember when they're, if they're doing makeup or anything in the art. Don't say, well, now I'm, now I'm perfect. You're, not, you're never going to be perfect. There's always more to learn. Because once, once you think you're on the top, then where you, are you going to go? You only go one <laughs> way. And, and I think as, as most of us as humans, we're always trying to, like, to get better and better and work the craft because you always, there's always something new to learn. There's always something new to do. Well, I tend to be a perfectionist, and so was Dick. He really was a perfectionist. He even would say to me, something that he did five years ago he said oh i should have done this or i should have done that because as i say you learn as you go you keep developing you know. now for listeners that aren't familiar with his work could you name a couple of things so listeners will know that he did that they probably have seen so that way they have an idea oh, of who absolutely the biggest one is the exorcist he created the makeup for linda blair and the exorcist and that little girl she was only 12 years old at the time Linda was quite a trooper because he actually, this was something that he did for the very first time. He had special contact lenses that he put in Linda's eyes because he wanted to take the life cast of her with her eyes open. Now, it's bad enough to be covered over with moulage to do a, a casting, but imagine a little girl, 12 years old, having that done with her eyes open. It must have been... I don't know how she could stay still doing it. I don't know how anybody could do it. <laughs> but she did. So, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Linda. Really amazing little girl. Well, actress, you know. But um, that's a, a, something that a lot of people don't realize. She was only 12 when she did that. And that, that's pretty remarkable. It really is. And um, she remained friends with Dick over the years, of course. And... Um, of course, otherwise, he's best known for he did all the makeup on the Dark Shadows TV series. And he did the makeup for Dustin Hoffman and Little Big Man, which we have on display. We have one, there's only two real original exorcist heads that was used in the head spinning sequence. The one we have and the other one is in the Museum of the Moving Image down mm -hmm. in New York. And we have the original... Uh, little big man headpiece of Dustin Hoffman as the Jack Crab, the old he was supposed to be over 100 years old in the film yeah. and then we also have we haven't got it on display yet but we do have that huge altered states headpiece that Dick created for the movie uh, it just it needs to have restoration so we need to do a lot of work on that yet but um, Dick was incredibly generous in so many ways and such a wonderful gentleman. As you could see, if you saw the presentation on Friday, that uh, you could see, mm -hmm. you know, the encouragement that he gave my museum and, and the work that I do. And listeners, I saw the presentation, and that was an excerpt of stuff that's going to be on the yes. DVD that's coming out yes. in October, which is a two-parter. It's, like, mm -hmm. it's coming out, I think the second part's coming out the, what, the following year? Probably the following year. It's called Classic Chillers of the Silver Screen. And I wish I had written down all the people that are in it. 
but I know we have Leonard Malton kicking it off at the very beginning, which he lays sort of the groundwork for effects and the, the classic films that laid the groundwork for everything that followed. And uh, Leonard, of course, is an incredible historian and uh, film critic, and uh, I've known Leonard for a long time. And so I, I couldn't think of anybody better to kick off the, the documentary. And then we also have interviews with, the, extensive interviews, with uh, both um, creature girlfriends, uh, Julie Adams and uh, Laurie Nelson, yep. as well as Rico Browning and Ben Chapman, which, um, you know, I've, I've been recording or, or filming these interviews for a number of years. So sadly, some of these people have passed since then. But isn't it great that you can actually hear them talk about their work and see them as well? Because um, as somebody said to me, the way we do interviews... They said, it's almost like we sat down for a cup of coffee with these people. That's what people have said. Because it's, they, they know me, and they feel comfortable when we do the interview. And sometimes they come out with things I didn't expect, you know, which is f fantastic. Like, I may have some questions that I sort of figured they could tell me. But like with Julie Adams, um, we were talking about being a... Um, under contract with mm -hmm. Universal. And as she said, she said, well, I originally felt I was being punished for being in Creature from the Black Lagoon. But she says, once we got into it, we were having such a good time. And then she says, um, I was looking forward to uh, the next picture, which was Bend of the River, which was a Western, and Technicolor with Rock Hudson and Jimmy Stewart. She said, the picture didn't do that well. Nobody remembers it today. But she said, everybody remembers <laughs> Creature from the Black Lagoon. So she says, what do you know? You know? She says, um, none of us felt, really thought that Creature was going to be such a classic. But she says, it's undeniable. It is. And uh, so she loved being associated with it when she realized the impact that it had on fans. And what you've done with that... DVD set that will be coming out one mm. of the you know one in the following year is the things I'm striving to do with the interviews is basically that same approach where when people are listening or just hearing two guys talking and I'm just asking you things like we're like we're at a restaurant or a bar I'm just saying to you hey Corden what about this and you're just telling me the stories and somebody's next next door is like telling his buddy shh I'm listening to that table <laughs> because they're telling some good stuff and that's the same goal and and I want to get these recorded because as we know things happen people's memories fade sadly people do pass away yes, and if you don't have these recorded then once they're gone it's gone and that, if you get into those memories from your great uncle henry hall he was those the, are the thing he's the only one that was left even at that time when i did the interview because of the fact that uh, all the others associated with werewolf london by that time had passed away and so uh, even Valerie Hobson, Lester Matthews. But not only that, of course, all the effects people had gone by that time. So it was important that I had interviewed him, even though I wish I'd done it. I could have done it on film, but it wasn't possible at that time because I was only 13, 14 years old when we first started talking about all this. So at least... I wrote down everything meticulously, exactly the way Henry told me. Otherwise, 
you wouldn't know how these effects were done, mm-hmm. you know. So. And, and that's that's what I'm very thankful and appreciative that people like you and, pe- and other people that have done it in other fields like Gregory mm-hmm. Mank and other people that mm-hmm. have, get those interviews and get those recordings. Because um, it's a piece of history. It is history. And, and, it, history. and it really needs to be documented so that future generations know how this was really done. And that's why I think it's, it's really important. I mean, there's other wonderful interviews that I've got that are coming up in this documentary, including uh, David Hedison and uh, Brett Halsey. And um, uh, I'm trying to get David Frankham, too, from Return of the Fly. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, uh, we're trying to approach, like, re- Creature and uh, The Fly and some other ones where I tried to get as many that were directly associated with it to do interviews with them. And, speak, and speaking of documenting, you've done also two documentaries. Yes, yeah. And, I mean, one of them is the, the Phantom of the Opera, Unmasking the Masterpiece. Yes. And, of course, the Aurora Monsters, the monster craze that yeah. gripped the world. Yes, yeah, true. <laughs> well, yeah. I know I got a little over melodramatic there. Well, I had to give it, I mean, the way it's written, I had that to give it the... That is the full title, I yes, had to give yeah. it the, the appropriate... Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, our announcer that did the trailer for it, he yeah he was over the top with it. <laughs> they were our monsters, you know the model kits that <laughs> gripped the world, you know. Anyway, but um, which I would you had Gorgo on, which we know is a mutual friend of ours. Yes, with Bill Diamond. Bill Diamond is his uh, trainer, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wonderful, wonderful gentleman that I've known for a long, long time. John Zacherly, or otherwise known as Zacherly, the cool ghoul. So he and Gorgo uh, do the, um, uh, the hosting mm-hmm. of that one. And it makes it fun, you know. And let's face it, as kids, that's what this was all about. It was fun. And um, I was fortunate to know James Bama, who did all of the cover art for, for um, the Aurora model kits. He lived in... Wyoming he just recently passed away but uh, I had to travel all the way to Wyoming to do the interview because he liked his privacy yeah and that's why he never did conventions because he'd had enough in New York when he worked for 25 years with deadlines incredible deadlines all the time in New York City that was the reason why he wanted to get away from the hubbub of New York and didn't want to deal with crowds or anything like that you can't blame him so he told me it's hard to believe especially if you're an artist that each of those covers many of them he did in one day what what wait a minute one day one day was it like jack kirby (laughs) it was amazing it was just amazing and he said some took a little longer but he says most of them i knocked out in one day I mean, when you consider the detail in each of those cover art that, that he did for the, the Aurora kits, pretty remarkable. And then the other thing was that I got to know Ray Myers, and he sculpted Bride Frankenstein, uh, Godzilla, uh, Rodan, and several other ones. Yeah. And um, when I approached him about this, he says, the model kits? He was like... You mean you don't want to talk to me about the, what I did for the Franklin Mint? <laughs> he, because he did these 
accurate motor cars or automobiles from the Franklin man. I said, no, I want to talk to you about the Aurora model kits. And he says, why? <laughs> I'm like you. I mean, you see the artwork and you build the model. I've built the Godzilla. I've built the Rodin growing up. And, mm -hmm. when you, and, you, and you just get, you see the picture and then you put the pieces together. Yeah, I understand. I'm like you. Of course. Who yeah. cares about the Franklin Mint? <laughs> so he uh, he didn't believe it, but I mean, I explained it all to him before we started doing the interview. And it's amazing that he carved those out of solid plastic. It was like a, a, a acrylic, not acrylic, um, acetate. Okay. That's what they, they were carved. He didn't make it out of clay. He actually sculpted it out of like michelangelo out of stone you know and um so i arranged it with wonderfest to bring him to wonderfest because that's the big model convention and i knew as much as i like uh, uh, monster bash and all the other ones i felt wonderfest would have been the key one to bring him to because it's about models and he went to that show with us I have never seen that man smile as much. He never stopped smiling. He couldn't believe it. All these young people were coming to him, like, you know, t praising him for his work. He never knew. I mean, he's since passed away. But isn't it wonderful that we were able to do that for him? And that, that is the amazing thing. When I see people that come to the conventions, whether it's Wonderfest, Monster Bash, and they show up, and it was when it's their first convention. Mm -hmm. And they're like, people you really care about yeah. this and it's like yes yes we do and it's mm -hmm. just amazing how they get to feel that love yeah and then they give the love back to the people that, mm -hmm. that enjoy their work and they get to know that they are appreciated and i think that is the wonderful thing about these conventions oh it is and and uh, uh i'm so glad that we could give that to ray myers because such a talented man and he never knew how much he was loved until we took him to that convention. I, of course, I told him when we did the interview, but he even, after the first night there, he said, I couldn't believe this. He says, I was just dumbfounded that, that these younger people love what I do, you know? So that's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to give something back to someone that you appreciate their work. And that's that's the important thing is that we were able to reciprocate and give back to them, and then realize so they can realize how much joy they've brought. And that's what I love about the documentaries that you've done and, and the work you're doing. And the other documentary said it was like the Phantom of the Opera, mm -hmm. unmasking the masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> well, I the the Cheney Phantom has been my all time favorite ever since I was a little kid. My folks, when I was eight, about eight years old. They gave him an 8-millimeter print of the whole movie from Blackhawk Films. That's where he got him back in those days. And um, I don't know how many times I've run that over the years. Never gotten tired of it. And when you think about it, what other silent film has had continuous release in theaters? Almost every Halloween, it's shown in a real movie theater with a live organ or, or, or something accompanying it. That's pretty remarkable for a film that's coming up to almost 100 years and just a few years is going to be 100 years old. That's pretty amazing. I took my son to see the Phantom of the Opera in an um, old movie theater house that had a Wurlitzer mm -hmm. being played. And I've always seen it on TV, but to see for his first time seeing it, he saw it 
as close as you could get to back in the day. Yes. And I and I, I can tell you, it is when you can hear the live music going and you're in the movie seat, seeing it on the big screen. It is a, still an experience. Well, when the stamps came out, the the monster stamps, you know, the post office monster stamps came out in 1997. Um, I worked it out with the U.S. Postal Service because I couldn't afford this all by myself. I tried, but I couldn't. I wanted to do a showing of Phantom of the Opera with a live 17-piece orchestra, which we did. And they arranged for Ron Chaney to come out for the showing. And um, uh, we were able to locate the original music sheets released with the film. So the, the-, the-, the orchestra played the original music sheets. Yes. I, by the end of the show, Ron was in tears because he says, I've never, ever seen it with a full orchestra playing what what people heard back in 1925. So being able to do these things is the goal of what I try to do with the Witch's Dungeon Movie Museum, Classic Movie Museum, because if we don't do these things, these the memories of these wonderful actors and films and everything... It, it's going to get lost that the new generation won't enjoy and realize why we feel the way we do about it, you know. Oh, I agree. And I saw a couple of your pieces that you brought with you. You had The Invisible Man, mm-hmm. which was wonderful. I, I mean, for people saying, oh, yeah, he just had an empty space. No, <laughs> no, no. This is The Invisible Man with the raps going around. Yeah, so. but, I, but I had him as – I did him differently. I did him as he first appears when he goes into the Lion's Head Inn Tavern. Most people do him, as I call, in his jammies. <laughs> and I just don't think that's quite the same. I think he's more impressive when he first comes in from the cold. You notice we had some snow on him and everything, and he's carrying his overnight bag yes. and like that. It just looks more impressive, I think, when you see it that way. And the goggles that were on it, we went to the trouble of being able to locate 1930s welder goggles so they're accurate to what... Uh, Claude Rains war in the film. I, I, I agree with you. It was impressive. Thank you. And I also, the Nosferatu mm-hmm. whipped the rats on his arms. No one seems to think about that, but I mean, really, anytime he entered the village, it was a horde of rats, or on the ship when he traveled to uh, from Transylvania to uh, Wisburg, where he went. You know, it's got a horde of rats. Which is, this is something people don't take into account. 1918, there was a plague over in Europe. It was a pandemic, just like similar to COVID. But it was carried over in Europe in many places by rats. So you can imagine audiences in 1922 was just a few years after this pandemic. They were pretty unnerved by this. Plus the fact that look at his teeth. He's got rat teeth, Nosferatu does. So I'm sure that this may have been a, a, quite an impact on people when they first saw the film. I, I mean, I remember when I first saw Nosferatu, and it's still, to me, one of the scariest images mm-hmm. of a vampire. Now, Bela Lugosi's performance is different. This, this is a creature of the night, yeah. and it is just... It is just terrifying, and you and you. I literally, when I was a young lad, saw it. I had like nightmares, you know. After oh yeah, because, because it's it a very creepy, eerie image, really. And uh, look at must have had a big effect on Stephen King because 
the vampire in Salem's Lot is basically Nosferatu. And you have done something recently with Nosferatu. Yes. That I, I was hoping you would talk about. Sure. I got to see sure. a little bit of here at the convention. Well, I was fortunate enough to procure a, a, a beautiful print directly from the uh, Museum of Modern Art negative. And this is on film. Everybody thinks everything's digital. It's not. <laughs> this was actually on film from the original Museum of Modern Art negative that we have a print of it. We transferred it to video, but we didn't stop there because when Nosferatu first came to this country, the title cards weren't really accurate to the original German story. And so... Uh, my friend Steve Matthews, who did the music score, he had the original German titles uh, translated, and he made brand new title cards, but look vintage, that we put into the film. So it's about as accurate as you're going to get to the screening of the film in Germany, except that we have it in English. And uh, he has a great love for this, as I do, and he was the one that did the entire music score uh, and also with sound effects, which a lot of people don't realize that when many of these films were released in the silent era and they had a live orchestra or organist, that they would have a sound effects man on hand to kind of make it come more alive for you, like a door shutting or a horse galloping or whatever. And so that's what we tried to do with this film. And um, uh, Mark Hamill was so impressed by it that... Uh, he agreed to do the introduction to it. And I said to Mark, I know you're awfully busy. If you want me to, I could write an introduction. Said, Absolutely not. I love this film. So he actually, those were his words. It wasn't something we wrote for him. Those were his words when he did the introduction for Nosferatu. And Mark Campbell doesn't put his name to just anything. You know, he, yeah. he, and he also has such a love for the classic horror films and movies and all that stuff. As I mentioned, he watches Sven Gulli almost every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, a lot of people do. I mean, he is, he, he, he's won awards year after year after year oh, for yes, best horror yeah, host. Yeah, and yeah. Well, I mean, people get upset sometimes. Why does the same guy keep winning? Well, you know, if he does an awesome job, he deserves to win. That's true. Sure it is, yeah. And Mark um, really genuinely loves this. And last year, he... He can't get away with this because he knows it's on the internet. Uh, last September, his birthday, he was 70 years old. I'm not far behind him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I called him up on his birthday, and I wish him a happy birthday. And he says, yeah, well, he says, you know what's more frightening than your movie museum is the fact that you and I have known each other for 40 years. <laughs> he says, now that's frightening because we first met in 1981. And so last year it was 40 years. So it's uh, he's a great guy. It was the start of a beautiful friendship. That's right. As Claude Rains said in <laughs> Casablanca there, or Humphrey Bogart did, yeah. So anyway, he just loves this stuff. And it's wonderful to have such talented people associated with what we do at the Witch's Dungeon. And you actually have a very talented person that is associated with the Witch's Dungeon that helps you. And we mentioned him earlier, Bill Diamond 
has, yes. has been a, a extremely helpful force. He you. has because one, a lot of people may know, and he's won several Emmy awards for both uh, lighting and for set design. So Bill does uh, just recently, since we moved to the new location, he did all the new sets for it. Of course, I work with Bill, and we, we kind of collaborate, but Bill does the actual construction. And uh, we just recently built a teleporter to put the fly in. So you actually see a teleporter machine, which we added the sound effect to and everything. And so I gotta get to the museum. Uh, you, really, you really need to, <laughs> yes. So, Bill, uh, more recently, we've combined forces even more than we did before. And so Bill is uh, very tightly associated with, as is Steve Matthews, who did the music score on Nosferatu. And he's a wonderful artist besides Steve is. So he uh, and I have been working together on some of the props. And as a matter of fact, we worked together on The Invisible Man to find just the right style overcoat for him to wear, the hat and the goggles and all that. So we're both (laughs) perfectionists. I think. <laughs> well, and that's the thing you you want you always want to keep striving to improve. You like you, uh, you got it looking good now, but if we keep looking, we can make it better. And, and you learned that from it goes all the way back uh, to Dick, Dick Smith. Smith. Yes. <laughs> and so with um, and Bill, we were out to dinner dinner just a few uh, about a half hour ago, and we were talking about this, and he says, you know, if we can expand this even further, I want to build sets that. Are absolutely accurate to each of these films and he eventually would like to bring it down to his studio right now it's not possible but eventually it'll go to bill's studio and as i mentioned at at my little presentation that uh when the day comes that i go to that great twilight zone in the sky or deep down below it depends which way i go (laughs) or you can come back as an undead that could be. So, anyway, <laughs> I just want people to know they don't have to worry that the Witch's Dungeon is going to go with me. It's, it's going to keep on. And because of Bill Diamond and Steve Matthews, the two of them are going to make sure that if anything does happen to me, that uh, the Witch's Dungeon continues. And I want people to understand, the Witch's Dungeon is not something that's new it's been around for how long now, Cortland? This is the 56th consecutive year, because I started it when I was just 13. So it's the longest running anywhere, as far as we know. And it was, has been featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not twice. Once back in the 80s and just recently when we had the 50th anniversary. So... Um, a lot of people know about it. <laughs> it was even on Entertainment Tonight, if I remember. Oh, right. it was. Yes, it was a couple of times on Entertainment Tonight several years back, and even on Good Morning America. And so, you know, a lot of people know about it, and uh, it's very rewarding. It really is. Now, where can people go to find out more about the Witch's Dungeon, about where its location is? I'm glad you asked that, <laughs> because <laughs> you need to go to our website, which is www preservehollywood.org that's preservehollywood.org and going there will also give you the information on how to get our documentaries on DVD and eventually we're going before fall we probably will have our online store open where you can get uh, not only the DVDs but you can also get uh, 
art prints of work that I've done or um, uh, rare photos that we've restored for the documentaries. Because with the Phantom of the Opera documentary, it covers all versions of Phantom, not just Cheney. And I have I spent three years working on it. There's over 800 photos and posters that I restored just for it because they look pristine in the in the film and in, in the documentary. So you know, we'll be offering some of those prints of what I've restored, and these are rare photos that really are hard to come by. So, and that's what I was hoping that people would be able to get these things, and then have, of course by getting these DVDs and. Prince, you're supporting the witch's dungeon, which supports them to expand and add more things. Because I, because they got to get the sea view control board out there. Yes. And I, I'll, I'll make this promise. Once you get that out there, and you said, "Would Robbie the robot's coming too?" No, no, no. <laughs> I wish he was. Oh, I no, wish no. he was. But, uh, uh, but I mean, it's very, very generous of Bill Malone that he's giving us the uh, the computer screen that was used in. Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea and The Fly, both Fly films. And so it's um, we're just thrilled that Bill is being that generous to give that to us. And he also had it totally restored, so it works perfectly. Well, I mean, once that's there, then I'm, I'm going to be excited to get up there, make yeah. a family trip, yeah. and do some other things in Connecticut, yeah. and then go to the Witch's Dungeon. Because you're also going to be opening up a uh, movie room. Yes, uh, we'll be showing real film, not just digital. We'll be showing real film. And we'll be doing movie nights where you'll be seeing an episode of Flash Gordon, cartoons, break for intermission, and then we show a feature film afterward. And it'll be all on real film. And it's, real film is just something, to see the movie in the way it was originally going to be seen by everybody else is, is an experience. But I know it's like to see original film. I know a lot of younger people... Everything's all digital, it's, and it's they nice they were just when I have done it in the past at the other location we were at before. I did do it somewhat there too, and I know younger people is like, how does that work? <laughs> they, <laughs> they just are mystified by it because it's film, and they've never seen it run on a film projector. They've only seen it in a little silver disc that you put into a machine. <laughs> And some don't even see that anymore because they just have it digitally. They're streaming and They're it. streaming it yes, on their yeah, devices, yeah. and they don't even do that. It's, so, uh, it, but, it's an interesting time. But especially live. with film, it's really something to be able to see it on a real screen because a lot of people have said, especially with the black and white films, that it has a more of a warmth to it than when you see it on TV, which always looks blue. On, on, t on Even if it's the best of digital, it tends to look bluish. Whereas film has almost a sepia tone to it, mm -hmm. which makes it even nicer. And, of course, we have genuine Technicolor prints of some of the color films, like some of the Hammer films like that. So how often would you get to see real, genuine Technicolor? And that's, like, that's something also with a lot of people filming now digitally instead of using film, mm -hmm. there's a big difference in the color between what you can get yeah. from film, depending on which you know, type of film you're using, mm -hmm. compared to digital and, mm -hmm. the, and the amount of... Well, if you, you don't do really tweak the, the digital, it tends to come out sort of grayish or a little bit bluish. And Technicolor had such vibrance to it. That, that's why 
uh, the Hammer films, they shot everything they did in Technicolor because it had such vibrance to it. And uh, that's a dif big difference when you get to see it on real film. So, it, it, anyway. Yeah. And so, exactly. So, so listeners, when you go there, you're going to get to see the stuff the way it, it, it literally... Well, it's going to take us till probably after the first of the year to get the movie theater up and running. So that's not ready just yet. Yeah. Don't forget these things do cost money to do. <laughs> yeah, so sometime next year, yeah, right. it'll be there. But again, you can always check on the website because the mm -hmm. website you'll know. We always update that. Yeah. When it's ready. And so check it ahead of time. So um, go to preservehollywood.org. I hate to keep plugging it, but you really have to go there to be able to know all the information. And there's... Uh, photos of the sets so people can get a, a handle on what it all looks like you know and court i want to thank you for joining me to talk about your great uncle your what got you started in doing this the models the phantom witch's dungeon and like i said i am going to get up there now when, when, when you get the sea view up there i'm definitely going to do want to be there because i don't want to be up there and then you bring the sea view you're just also, doing it to get me to come back again, aren't you, Courtney? I am. Well, also, we're excited that Dan Roebuck told me that he plans to visit in October. And, of course, he's the new Grandpa Monster in the Monsters. And Dan has been a longtime friend. And he's a collector himself. So he has some very rare pieces of his own. So it's great to, to see Dan again. And he'll be there to, to greet people that come visit. So, again, come visit. And... Um, Gordon, thanks again for taking your time to um, talk with me. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, listeners, if you're those wondering about the Witch's Dungeon, I'll have it at the web address in the show notes so you can go and click on it, take a look-see. And if you live in Connecticut, why haven't you gone already? <laughs> Hello, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Gordon Hall, and I want to thank him again for joining us on the Diecast Movie Podcast. It's always nice to have people that, do so many different interesting things and have interesting histories uh, with his. Also, I want to tell everybody that if you want to leave us feedback, please email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us feedback on our Facebook page, which is also Diecast Movie Podcast. And if you click the uh, like and follow button, you'll know when new episodes are coming out. It can follow along that way, or even better yet, whatever you use to listen to your podcast whether it's Apple, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Spotify, you can hit the follow and then automatically get notified when the next episode is out and ready to go. Our next episode is going to be the continuation of our Hammerama series with Alistair Hughes. Al and I will be talking about The Mummy's Shroud. So that'll be the next episode out. So I hope everybody enjoys it. For those unfamiliar with Hammerama, I'll let you hear a promo as we exit out this episode and again thank everybody i want to thank everybody for listening and i hope everybody enjoys what we're doing thanks goodbye i'm al from new zealand and i'm steven from maryland usa we are hemorama welcome to our new podcast enter freely and of your own will part of the multi-award nominated diecast movie podcast Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. 
We will cast our international eyes across then and now reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hemiverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hemmer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.